Welcome back to our course on reading the Bible for all it's worth. In the last session, we talked about how the Bible is a divine book. It comes from God. We talked about the implications of that. Um, But we also said that the Bible has two natures. So in a similar way that Christ was both divine and human, and that somehow mysteriously works together, the Bible is very similar. And obviously, the Bible is different than Jesus, and there's, there's differences as well as similarities. Um, but we're saying the Bible is a divine book given to us um, as God inspired these prophets and, and apostles and key figures to record his words in the Bible. Um, and we want to pay attention to that as we're interpreting. In the same way that we do that, we need to acknowledge the Bible is also a human book. And so that's our subject for this session is saying the Bible is a human book and we don't do service to the word of God if we don't recognize um, the human elements in the book. Okay, so we want to study the, the Bible with these human elements in mind. Okay, so here, here's, I'm going to give you a quote from R.C. Sproul. All right, he says this, Unless we maintain that the Bible fell down from heaven on a parachute, inscribed by a celestial pen in a peculiar heavenly language, uniquely suited as a vehicle for divine revelation, or that the Bible was dictated directly and immediately by God without reference to any local custom, style, or perspective, we are going to have to face the cultural gap. That is... The Bible reflects the culture of its day. Now, he's saying there uh, exactly what I'm saying when I say uh, the Bible is a divine book, but it's also a human book. It's a divine book, but it's not a book that div- came down out of, on a parachute out of heaven, right? I mean, you can think of the Ten Commandments, and God wrote those Ten Commandments on a tablet of stone, right, with his own finger. And so those Ten Commandments were like straight out of heaven in a sense, right? But even then, even then, even with those, and the rest of the Bible wasn't really written like that, right? It was God inspiring and the Spirit of God working through different people to write these things over time. Um, but even, even with the Ten Commandments, um, it's not simply a divine book coming down in a heavenly language or whatever. It's God speaking to his people who spoke Hebrew, writing uh, on cultural artifacts, right? Um, tablets of stone, that's cultural artifact writing in human language uh, that they've been given his words to people. And so even with the Ten Commandments that came from the very finger of God, we have culture in play. We have language in play. And all these things have to be considered when we say the Bible is a divine book, but it is also a human book. Okay. Now, here's a here's a quote from um, Scott Duvall and Daniel Hayes. Um, they've got a great book called Grasping God's Word. Um, it's more of a textbook approach to, to this kind of thing. But man, if you want to take a next step, it's a great one to dig into. But here's what they say. God worked through the various human authors, including their background, personality, cultural context, writing style, faith commitments, research, and so on, so that what they wrote was the inspired word of God. So you can see they come to that same spot. What they wrote is the inspired word of God, but how did God do that? He worked through human authors, backgrounds, personalities, cultural context, writing style, that kind of a thing, okay? And so this is why we say it's a divine book, and we never want to lose sight of that, but we also can't lose sight of the fact that it is a human book, okay? So because of that, because it's a human book, we want to study the Bible with the human element in mind, okay? And the first step in that, the first thing we want to do is we always want to consider the author of whatever book we're reading. The Bible is 66 different books combined together into one sort of anthology that works together in a way that's beautiful. But with each of the books, we want to consider the author. So the Bible was actually written by dozens of authors. Like there's somewhere around 40 authors um, that that wrote in the Bible, okay? It was written in three different languages. So um, 
almost all of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There's a few small sections that are Aramaic. Um, and then the whole New Testament was written in Greek, okay? And so, we got to pay attention to those things as we read through. It was written over the course of 1,500 years. So, if you want to think in terms of cultural gap and development of language and those kinds of things, 1,500 years is a long span of time. And so, we have to keep all these factors in mind as we look at it. And it was written to a wide array of audiences. I mean, really, written to slaves being let out of Egypt with the, the nation of Israel, um, written to the nation, uh, foreign nations like Edom, as God sends prophets to speak to them, written to uh, Jews living um, under the oppressive reign of Roman citizens, written to Gentiles. So, there's all this broad breadth of audiences as well. And so, as we, as we pay attention to the author and we see the diversity of the people who are writing and who they're writing to and when they're writing and what language they're using, we need to keep in mind that each author has a unique personality that comes through. And so, the Bible is a divine book, but we can see differences of style and personality from time to time, and that shows up in the writings. And the Bible is not weaker because of that. In fact, the Bible is richer because of that. And our study of the Bible can become far richer because of that if we pay attention to what's being said. So, think of the different writers. Uh, David, he was a musician, right? Um, He was once a shepherd. He eventually became a king. And each of those background elements and helps us to show up, we see like it shows up in a way that he wrote the Psalms and it helps us to see kind of what's going and we see his personality uniquely in there, right? Um, paying attention to personality helps us see that sometimes Paul's writing and he uses sarcasm a little bit as he's writing. And we, we won't recognize that, you know, there's nothing worse than someone saying something sarcastically and you take them literally in that. You know, I think of... Um, the Babylon Bee or The Onion, they're these like satire news sites and it never fails. People will share articles that are just jokes, but sharing it like they're real. Like, can you believe this? And then some nice person on social media has to say, hey, actually, hey, this is a satire site and, you know, whatever. And it's awkward for everybody. So, paying attention to personality helps us see, man, sometimes Paul will slip a sarcastic comment in there, right? Um, when we read Mark as opposed to Matthew or Luke or John, um, Mark writes with this sense of urgency and um, a preference for like, I don't know, simple action, right? And, and, it, and he's not creating, um, recording these long discourses like John does. And so, we see the personalities of the authors as we dig in and that helps us understand it better. I mean, so we're going to consider the author. We're going to consider where they're coming from. We're also going to consider the setting for each book. All right. So, the setting, you know, um, Man, Paul wrote to these specific churches. He's got these different letters to these specific churches in specific places. And so, his personal, some churches he had spent many years pastoring and some he didn't know really at all. And the texture of that, the setting of that um, shows up in the book and we need to pay attention to it as we read. Um, Interesting, I don't know if you are like me and you've been confused by 1 and 2 Chronicles records many of the same events as 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, and also first and second Kings. Okay. So you'll, you'll read in one and not in the other. And it's like, there's a difference of perspective and difference of order sometimes. And some things are left out or included. And you kind of wonder why, but you see with Chronicles, there's two things. One is it's written with a more priestly approach. Um, Samuel and Kings are giving a little more of like history in Chronicles is a little more priestly, a little more focused on the temple. And also in the setting, um, Samuel and Kings are written before the exile where, where Israel's taken into captivity and Chronicles is written during the exiles. They're looking to come back. And so Chronicles tends to be a little more optimistic about these events. So these are just subtle little things, right? 
But as we study, as we learn, as we pay attention to the fact that it's not just a divine book, it's also a human book, we see the human elements and we see how God used those human elements to shape what's really there. The other thing we'll need to do is we need to consider the cultural context in each one. So not just the setting, but also the cultural context, right? So Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is written from a Jewish person to a Jewish audience. That seems very clear and it shapes how his gospel gets written. Uh, Mark, on the contrary, is is written to a Gentile audience. It seems pretty clear. He'll explain some of the Jewish things and he'll leave a lot of the Jewish things out. Um, you know, I've already mentioned, you know, that you look at the Pentateuch, it's written to people who have been freed from slavery in the Exodus, getting ready to enter the promised land. Um, you, you, we get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, you see it's written to Jewish Christians that are kind of tempted to go back into Judaism. So paying attention to the cultural context that each of these different people find themselves in helps us understand the book, which helps us understand what it means for our life and those kinds of things. All right. We also want to consider, um, this is like my fourth point here. We want to consider the, the genre or the writing style of each um, thing. And we're going to actually, um, in a couple sessions, we're going to take some time to walk through um, different Old Testament and New Testament genres of writing. Because one of the biggest mistakes I think we make in interpreting scriptures, we do not pay attention to the genre at all. And when we do that, we're trying to read a psalm in the same way that we try to read a New Testament letter, and it simply doesn't work. It leads us into um, some, of the, some of the same things we warned about in the last session, where we are kind of putting words into God's mouth that he didn't really say, or we're misunderstanding the clear thing he's trying to tell us, and it gets us into weird territory, and so it's so important. So what we have, I mean, psalmists, um, they all wrote songs, right? And that's recorded as scripture. Moses wrote laws, and they're recorded as scripture, Right. The authors of Proverbs wrote these Proverbs, these wise words to live by, and that's inc- recorded as scripture. Uh, New Testament authors, many of them are writing letters recorded as scripture. Um, the author of Ecclesiastes, man, is it's bizarre, but it's so beautiful. He wrote, wrote basically a quest narrative, right? Um, that, that includes like some subgenres within it, like deconstructed Proverbs that are often at odds with the Proverbs themselves. And so, those also weird and um, and different as they are, are recorded as scripture, right? Luke seems to be writing pretty straightforward history in Luke and Acts. And so all these things, paying attention to the genre and the writing style helps us get a better sense of what's being said. What does it mean? What are the implications for us today as we try to observe, interpret, um, apply all those kinds of things? Um, and the last point here is, is, is we're paying attention to... Um, you know, the authors and all that kind of stuff, the setting, we want to consider the unique, unique faith commitments of each author. This is important too, because I think, you know, even though John wrote history in the gospel of John, um, it's not unbiased history. And I think that might sound like a scary thing to acknowledge, but it's simply true. It's biased history. Um, It's a historical account that is meant to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Like that's really how he's doing it. And he says that in the last couple of chapters, there's a couple of statements where he says, um, I'm writing these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so he's trying to persuade us of something. And that's that's just the reality. And so we need to consider that as we go through, right? Um, the faith commitment of the authors, we find that the uh, psalmists are questioning God at times. They really are. But they have this overriding faith commitment that's deeper than all that, and they maintain their faith in God's goodness and his providential care. And so, really, the whole Bible is biased. There's no way to get around that. It's biased. Um, It teaches everything that it does with the underlying conviction that God is the hero, and he's going to conquer in the end. Okay, so in addition to what we're saying about trying to study the Bible with the human element in mind, 
I'm going to give you a second thing to chew on here, which is this. We want to consider the ways in which God utilized normal means of human communication. All right. So I, I said that with reference to the Ten Commandments, right? God's finger writing on these tablets of stone. Now, that's not normal human communication for God to write with his own finger. However, um, it is God using human language, right? In a way that Moses and all of Israel can understand the things that God wrote, okay? So, because God used normal means of human communication, when, when God speaks, we can find that God speaks and people understand that he is speaking and they respond accordingly. So, for instance, there's this really bizarre chapter um, in, in Genesis 22 where God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, okay? And it's disconcerting, it's unsettling, um, Isaac you know, ethically, morally should have known better than to sacrifice his son, right? But God tells him to do it. And so, that's a difficult command that raises a lot of questions for Abraham. But here's what's crazy is that Abraham took God's words at face value, literally did what God asked of him, okay? And so, God doesn't chastise Abraham for taking his words too literally. Like Abraham goes and he's ready to, he raises the knife ready to sacrifice his son because God said, sacrifice your son, right? And God doesn't say, what are you doing? I didn't, I meant that figuratively, not literally. No, instead, God was pleased with Abraham's obedience in a difficult situation. Okay. And so I think what it says is, I I don't know how it works. I don't know the details, but somehow um, God is able to communicate to his people in a way that his people understand that it's him talking and they understand the content of that message. And that, that is simply true throughout the Bible. It's just assumed, right? Uh, We're not explained all of how it works. I mean, you see things like, People have a vision, a dream, they receive a word from the Lord, um, those kinds of things, but we're never really told the mechanics of it too much. Um, maybe maybe when Balaam's donkey speaks, we get the mechanics of it a little bit. Sounds like a donkey spoke with a voice that spoke in, I suppose, Hebrew, and Balaam was able to understand what he said. <laughs> but other than that, it's like we're just we're just um, we're just left with the clear assumption that's not challenged whatsoever, that God is able to speak to people in a way that they can understand. Like it seems to be human language and they are able to understand. And that's important for us, right? I mean, it it shouldn't be surprising, right? God is all powerful. So he is capable of communicating to people in a way that we'll understand. Um, But it's important to recognize that and to pay attention to how he's doing that as we go through, because he he is doing the same thing now that he was doing then, taking human words and communication language and speaking to us directly, but we have to pay attention to how that's all taking place. Okay. Um, now, uh, the second thing I want to say uh, uh, with regard to that, God's words are always meant to be taken at face value. And, and I'm saying face value. I don't mean taken literally. Okay. Um, th- there's, a, there's a whole lot in the Bible that is difficult to understand. So I want to acknowledge that. Like Peter says that in second Peter three, like, he talks about how, you know, in Paul's writing, there's a lot of things that are difficult to understand as there is in the rest of scripture. And I think in saying that, he's kind of referring to Paul's writings as scripture. And so I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, but at the same time, he's basically just saying like, yeah, there's a lot that's difficult to understand. So it's not like it's easy. It's not like God speaks and it's like, oh yeah, nothing could be clear, right? It's it's hard with the puzzle it out with the to, um trust God ultimately and wrestle with it all. But our default approach always should be understanding God's words, like basically in a way that we expect God to speak clearly and simply. So now here's the thing, poetry, metaphors, other literary devices, like rhetorical statements, 
th- those things, like typically when we see those, we they stand out to us, right? We can see that that's what's happening, right? There's there is poetry there. There's a metaphor being used, right? We can usually tell when a biblical statement isn't meant to be taken literally. So, for example, John ten, Jesus says, "I am the door," right? And we know he's not saying I'm made out of wood and I swing on a hinge, right? He's saying like. I'm like an entry point, or he's, he's giving something metaphorical, and we know language and how it works well enough that we can understand that that is a metaphor, right? But sometimes, um, the setting, um, figuring out what the, what the genre of a passage is, like, can be a huge subject of debate, of debate and, um, and, like, it affects the interpretation of it, right? So, how much of Revelation is meant to be taken literally, uh, how much of that is metaphorical, like, that's, that's where we get into debates, right? Genesis 1, um, even Song of Solomon, right? How much do we take literally? So, all, all I'm trying to say here is, man, because this is a, a human book, all right, and God's trying to speak to humans in ways that p- human beings can understand, let's always default towards taking it at face value. And that includes allowing for metaphor, hyperbole, um, sarcasm even. Um, and no, we'll, we'll, we'll disagree on some things. That's okay. It's totally fine. We're trying to just acknowledge the nature of Scripture and what that means for the way we pursue um, understanding it, interpreting it. All right. Now, here's what I want to say um, next. And this is um, just about the last section I want to go through here. It says this, we want to consider the ways that the human authors wrote to specific audiences within his specific historical and geographical situations for specific purposes. So, I hope you can hear. I'm trying to emphasize the word specific, okay? We want to consider the ways that God used not just normal human human communication, but that he did so in specific contexts to specific people uh, through specific people, right? Um, and so, knowing, recognizing the specificity of each of the writings in the Bible will help us get down to what's really happening. So, we want to pursue the authorial intent. That's like the phrase that we use a lot, the authorial intent. What did the author intend. Okay. And this is really important because God is capable of communicating. So our focus, we want it always to be more on what God did say, like what did God say through this human author rather than on what we often do, which is like, what does this mean to me? Right now, what does this passage mean to me is a very important question. It's something we wrestle with. A lot of that comes more in the application phase and to some extent in the meditation phase as we get later into it. But as we're digging into saying, what did God say? We want to get to the authorial intent. What did he mean when he led Moses to write this? What did Moses mean when he wrote this? And those are huge, important questions that we're going to dig into when we get into uh, the interpretation phase. Second thing I want to call you to here is we want to default to what we call the historical grammatical method. Okay. The historical grammatical method. Now, that's kind of like a um, jargony term or whatever. But it's just combining the two things, history and gra- grammar, okay? So, historical, like we want to pay attention to the setting, the, the history of the written revelation, right? Um, it was all written in an ancient or classical context, so study it like it was, right? So, we want to pay attention to the history and we want to pay attention to the grammar. So, because God wrote using normal human words, normal human communication, we want to analyze those actual words, the syntactical relationships between them, Right, And so, if we're going to find out what the author meant, we have to analyze the grammar and the way the words are used. Now, if that sounds scary to you, like, I hate grammar, I hate diagramming sentences, those kinds of things, don't worry. We're not saying you need to be an English expert or anything, but it is simply saying, um, yeah, let's pay attention to 
the grammar and, you know, how does a verb function in a sentence? Where's the verb in this sentence, right? How does a subject function in a sentence? Where's the subject in this sentence? Um, what modifiers are used? And and all of that taking into account the historical context. So the, talking about the historical grammatical method, we want to default to that. And the idea is simply, let's understand the book as it was written, as it was intended to be received by its original audience. Then we'll take the step of saying, what does that mean for us? And that, that distinction is really important. There's other things related to the idea that this is a human book written to a specific situation. So we want to watch for geography in the midst of that. Now, we all know someone, many of us know, I guess I should say, people that have traveled to Israel and they've, you know, um, been through Jerusalem and and uh, the Red Sea and just all these kinds of different places. And many of them will say, man, this changed my, my life. This changed my interpretation of the Bible because I can see the actual places. That is great. Um, that's not even necessarily what I'm talking about um, when I say watch for geography, although I don't doubt at all that that would help. And if anyone wants to donate a trip to Israel, um, I can provide my written address for that. But watching for geography, geographical factors looks like things like this. Here, here's like an example, and it usually doesn't um, you know, play in exactly to the extent that this does, but there's, there's interesting um, uh, geographical ties that can help us understand the significance of some things. So Matthew chapter four, Jesus is coming on the scene and um, he's just, just beginning his ministry. So he's been tempted by um, Satan in the wilderness. He's beginning his ministry. And here's, um, here's what it basically says. Um, it says in, in Matthew four twelve. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into the Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. Um, And basically, Jesus goes and he stays, lives in Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, of course, that doesn't mean much to any of us, right? But you pay a little bit of attention to the context and you find you look second Corinthians 1520 or second Kings, sorry, 1529. You see that's where the exile started. God's people were in the promised land and the battle began to take them out. And the first place that they were began moving into captivity, being pulled out of their kingdom, right? The kingdom of Israel was in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. So paying attention to that geography leads us to see, okay, here's Jesus starting his ministry in Zebulun and Naphtali. And what is he going to say? What's he going to announce? Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here he is announcing the kingdom in the very place that the kingdom had been stolen from them. So now geography, there's so much to it. You can always look up things on maps and, and there's there's cool like Bible atlases and stuff, but it's just saying it, it all, it all kind of matters, right? And so it doesn't mean we have to be insightful on every front at once, but it's just saying, let's all pay attention to what's there. And in recognizing the Bible as a human book helps us to do that. Now, we also want to watch for cultural factors. Um, this is really important. So, let me take some obvious ones. Romans 16, 16. Um, Paul tells us, greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay. Now, if you don't watch for cultural factors, you're like, okay, here is a literal biblical command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay. And so, we turn to each other and we say, okay, if your church is not kissing um, as people walk in the doors, then you're not biblical and you clearly don't love Jesus, right? Um, But we know instinctively, right? This is a cultural thing that was happening. And so we watch for that and we see, okay, man, it's interesting. What was it about that culture that made them so um, kissy? You know, that's bizarre. Definitely would communicate something different in our culture. And we're going to wrestle with all that. But these are things to keep in mind, right? 
Um, Matthew 26 is the, the woman that pours out the perfume on Jesus' feet, right? And, um, you know, I think if someone came to me, poured perfume on my feet, I'd be upset. Like, oh, I'm going to stink all day. This is ridiculous. What's going on here? In Jesus' day, that communicated something different. There's a cultural thing going on. Um, you know, passages like 1 Corinthians 11, the women are uh, told to wear head coverings. And so what, what's going on with the culture of the day that makes these head coverings mean something specific? And, and what is that? And how do we dig into that? These are all things that we've got to wrestle with. So when the culture seems to be a factor in interpreting a passage, we want to ask things like, does the behavior in that biblical culture mean something different than it would in ours, right? I mean, I think that's very often true, right? It, it, we can ask questions like, is there a timeless principle that we can extract from it? And if so, how, how would that principle best be expressed in our culture, you know? And, um, and so, you know, those are great things to wrestle with. We, we can do that. I mean, just, just take something like Deuteronomy 6 tells us to teach our kids the commands, write them on the doorposts um, of our homes, those kinds of things, right? I don't think it's that hard to say, okay, eh, I don't think it's literally saying we all today need to write the commands of God on our actual doorposts. But the idea, the principle, the timeless principle seems to be, you've got a responsibility as a parent to teach your kids the words of the Lord. And so we want to keep that in mind. So how could we do it? I mean, there's probably a lot of different ways. We could do it with the doorpost, right? But probably we could find like something that fits our culture better, like an app or something or a book or doing some crafts or something like that, right? The idea is always wherever we go in the context of our daily lives, there's this teaching. And the last thing here, we want to watch for historical factors, okay? So how does the history help us to see things? So, so we already talked about the progress of Revelation um, in, the, in the last session. We're going to keep our eye open for that, right? Um, also means like watching for spe- specific histor- historical teachers, teachings that aren't meant to be continued everywhere and always. And just silly examples. Second Timothy 4, Paul commands Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, okay? So now we're not going to follow what he that command, right? Because we can see it's a historically bound thing and whatever. Now, that's an easy silly example, but um but you know things like that are throughout the Bible we need to keep an eye out, right? Um okay. So, um taking all that in mind, I just want to kind of s- step back and say we've talked about the two natures of scripture here, okay? And I just want to say, if that feels a little overwhelming, I just kind of gave you a laundry list of different things we're going to keep our eyes open for and always keep in mind this and that. Um, don't be overwhelmed by it, okay? Don't be paralyzed. Um, the whole point of this is not to get into a culture of policing where we're looking at everyone else around us and saying, you interpreted a passage wrong. Um, you forgot to check the geography of that passage. Like, that's not what this is about at all. What we're trying to do is get ourselves to a place where we are leaning more and more and more into who God is, what he says to us. Remember, we're trying to find life in Jesus together, and we're trying to invite others to do the same. So paying closer attention to what scripture actually is, what this book actually is, is going to help draw our hearts into it more closely. Um, It's going to help us find that life in Jesus. And um, the idea is, man, right now it's a little more structured than it will be later on. Right now, as we walk through this together over the next several sessions, we're going to just dig in, look deeper, take our time, explore, and just kind of allow these things to shape us a bit so that we can take our eyes off the structure once again and just dive into a lifetime of just careful reading of the Bible. Um, Not getting stressed, um, but paying attention and doing homework and and knowing the right questions to ask and, and knowing some of the tools that we can go to. 
um, all these things. So it's it's an it's an invitation. What that's what we're doing here. It's an invitation to pay greater attention to dig even deeper, right? And 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 all the more the rest of your life. This is a project I hope that we are working on for the rest of our lives. Where we're reading it one step at a time, one day at a time. It's a long game of making our church a a deeper place, right? As we dig into scripture. And, um, and then the other reason you should not be stressed is a lot of what I just laid out in talking about the divine nature and the human nature of scripture, these principles we're going to revisit when we talk about observing, interpreting, when we talk about the genres of the Old and New Testament. So we're going to unpack all of it. And I really just want to be filling your mind and your toolbox um, with tools, with thoughts, with, um, with a approach to scripture that's going to um, just help us sit and rest and find so much life.